You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. We are continuing our series on the English Reformation with Reverend Dr. Cameron McKenzie. He is professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. McKenzie, welcome back to The Coffee Hour. Thank you. Nice to be here today. Thanks for having me. We learned a lot already about the the English Reformation, where it began in our first episode in this series. A, a quick review of some of the key figures from last time. We learned a little bit about Thomas Bilney, Hugh Latimer, and Thomas Wolsey last time. And I know we have some new key figures to look at this time as well. Anything you want to recap on from last time before we jump into new figures in the Refor- English Reformation? Yeah, just very briefly should realize that the activity was done at kind of an intellectual level by theologians and others who could read Latin. And so it's it's that kind of person that we're talking about here initially. Oh, and the University of Cambridge was a hotbed of people interested in these new ideas. All right, so I know you've got a, a couple of people on the docket for today. Who do you want to start with? Let's start with uh, Robert Barnes. Robert Barnes is sometimes called the English Luther. So if there's somebody called the English Luther, we've got to talk about him, right? <laughs> he he was another one of these Cambridge scholars like Bilney and Latimer that we talked about last time. He was really a leader in the White Horse Inn group, the little little Germany. Here's a kind of piece of trivia. It's not all that significant, but it's kind of interesting. He was a member of the same just order, the same group of monks or friars that Martin Luther was. He belonged to the Augustinians, but not, of course, in Erfurt or Wittenberg, but right there at Cambridge. And he joined when he was uh, just a teenager. So his um, order sent him off to the continent for several years. He went to Louvain. And there, the influence of Erasmus was quite strong. And so when he returned to Cambridge around 1520, he was named the head of the Augustinians in Cambridge. And he was an advocate of what I'm going to call the new learning, which really was this idea of renewing church and society by going back to the classics of Greece and Rome and back to the Christian classics of the New Testament, especially, and the Fathers. So he got into that in a very big way. Now, that didn't necessarily make him a Lutheran. Erasmus was never a Lutheran. His good friend Thomas More in England was never a Lutheran. But Barnes not only was under the influence of the new learning, He also was friends with people like Bilney, and they convinced Barnes that the stuff that he was interested in ought to lead him to the Christian gospel. And Barnes accepted that. He saw the Christian gospel in the gospel and himself became an advocate of Reformation. Let's just call it small letter R Reformation at this point. But he's he's much more important in Cambridge than the others that we have mentioned. So he had opportunities to lead the university in this direction and showing somewhat his significance in Cambridge. 
he was selected as the preacher on Christmas Eve in 1525 at one of the big churches in Cambridge, St. Edward's Church. And his text was from Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Great Christmas text, right? Well, he decided to use that. And I'm not sure how he got this out of this particular text, but he decided to use that as an occasion to really go on to the attack of all the corruptions that there were, especially among the clergy. Their pretensions, their pride, their greediness, they're looking for titles and money and so forth. So he really went on the attack in that Christmas Eve sermon. Well, this got him into big trouble, very big trouble. One of those who was, as I said last time, responsible for, really he's kind of the the big shot in all of England at this time, Cardinal Woolsey, was one of those who really, you could say, Barnes was attacking. And so no sooner was that sermon over than the university officials charged him with 25 points of heresy. And the vice chancellor of the university said, no more preaching from you. Well, one consequence of this was that Barnes was brought to London and examined personally by Cardinal Woolsey. Now, Woolsey didn't want to create martyrs, so he treated Barnes rather mildly. But when Barnes proved to be stubborn and was defending himself, resorting to the scriptures and the like, then Woolsey made it clear that if he didn't recant back down, he was going to go to the stake and be burned to death. So, Barnes recanted. And instead, he simply had to do penance, which meant kneeling during a long sermon preached against heresy. And then he had to carry a bundle of unlighted sticks around the church, just basically to show the penalty that he had escaped. Barnes was not permitted to go back to Germany. He was put under house arrest in London by the Augustinian there. It must have been a fairly mild kind of imprisonment because he can he now went back to kind of promoting his Protestant views. He even tried to circulate or did circulate English Bibles, Dale's New Testament. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And so they moved him from London to another Augustinian community up in Northampton where there weren't many people around. Well, Barnes couldn't take that, so he decided he was going to leave. And he did so by faking his own suicide. He wrote a suicide note, left it on the table in his room, and then changed his clothes and took his personal clothes and put them beside the river to make it look as if he had drowned himself. While he himself, dressed as a pauper or as a beggar, made his way to London. And then in London, he was able to find passage to the continent. I think it was to Antwerp that he went. And this was like 1528, 1529, 1530. And he no sooner gets to the continent than he makes his way all the way to Wittenberg. And he enrolls as a student at Wittenberg under the name of Latin Antonius Anglus, which just means Anthony English. And although his name was Robert, that's how the Lutherans knew him. And in fact, Luther always called him uh, Anthony. 
So at any rate, he's in Wittenberg for a couple of years. He gets to know and study with Luther and Melanchthon. He becomes a pretty good friend to the pastor in Wittenberg, Johannes Bugenhagen, and becomes a full-fledged Lutheran. Now, the early 1530s are the time period when Henry VIII is starting to move toward breaking with Rome. And so there were opportunities for people like Barnes, perhaps to influence what was going on in England. And he actually wrote up a, a couple of things to kind of make the case for a Protestant England. One of those was a supplication in which he went through basic doctrines of the Christian religion and articulated them in a very Lutheran fashion. So justification by faith alone, work of Christ, the atonement for all sins completed once for all, the law as a mirror to our own sinfulness. He even gets a little bit into the two kingdoms doctrine that Luther at this time. And so that work was published. On the other side of this, Protestants, or I shouldn't say Protestants, again, supporters of the king in England were looking for support for the king's desire to get a divorce from Catherine of Aragon. Again, we'll talk about that a little bit later in the series. But one of those whom they hoped would give them support was Martin Luther. And Barnes was tasked with presenting the request to Luther and then taking Luther's answer back to England. So he did. And unfortunately, Luther did not give Henry the answer that he wanted. He did, Luther did not think that Henry should uh, divorce Catherine of Aragon. Now, I probably shouldn't even bring this up because it's going to could get us off track. But Luther, Luther did say that, no, you can't get a divorce. You have no grounds for a divorce. But maybe, maybe you could do what the patriarchs did and take a second wife. So Luther's suggestion was don't get divorced, but maybe bigamy would be okay. So anyway, this, this was not the answer that Henry VIII was looking for. And so this first effort by Barnes to kind of bring the Reformation to England didn't work. Nonetheless, a few years later, it did work. Henry had broken with Rome. They needed people who could preach and teach against Rome in order to justify what the king had done. And so Barnes was able to come back to England and from 1534 to 1540, Barnes was there in England. Well, he went on some diplomatic missions back to Germany, so he's not always in England, but he was there available close to the king's court, close to those people who wanted more reformation in England than Henry eventually granted, preaching and promoting reform, really preaching and promoting Lutheranism in England during those critical years under Henry VIII in the middle of the 1530s. There's more to learn about Robert Barnes, I think, but we do need to take a quick break. We're talking with Dr. Cameron McKenzie from the Fort Wayne Seminary on our English Reformation history. This is super fun. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. 
Whether you're taking one of 50 plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. Joining us is Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne. We're in the midst of Robert Barnes' story. Do you want to wrap up his story at all and and tell us what actually happened to him? Yeah, sure. Um, In spite of Barnes' advocacy of Reformation theology at court, the faction that supported more Reformation failed by the end of the 1530s. One of the reasons for that was diplomatic. Henry had flirted with joining the Schmalkald League. Diplomats, including people like Barnes, had arranged for Henry to marry into a family that was married into the Protestant leaders, the Lutheran leaders of the Reformation. He was engaged to an Anne of Cleves and sister I think her name was Sybil or Sibylla of Cleves, was married to Elector John Frederick the Magnanimous. So Henry VIII almost became a brother-in-law to the Elector of Saxony. Anyway, Anne came over. Henry, it's a complicated story, but he did not not live with her as a man and wife, or if he did, there was no consummation. And so that marriage was annulled and that diplomatic initiative failed. And the man who kind of had promoted it ended up falling into Henry's disfavor. And that man, his name was Thomas Cromwell, was basically Barnes. Henry decided he was going to double down on Catholicism, and Barnes refused to double down with him. So did Cromwell. And as a result, there was a house cleaning of Protestants at the court in England, and Barnes was one of those who was cleaned out. In 1540, he was found guilty of heresy and burned at the stake. Another martyr, and he died a good Lutheran confessing his faith in Jesus at the last. And Luther just reacted basically with horror. He said that Barnes was deceived by hope. Always Barnes hoped that at long last, his king would become a good man. Luther added, such hope was in vain because Whatever Harry wants, that must be regarded as an article of faith, both for life and death. So anyway, that's the end of Robert Barnes. (laughs) There's so much history here that we don't know. And I am so grateful that we get to learn this. So Robert Barnes, okay, one little bit of knowledge that I would love to know since he was friends with Luther and who else was he? Hoganagen, Melanchthon. Right. Okay. So Robert Barnes is English. Luther and Bugenhagen probably speak German. Who was, who was speaking a different language to understand the conversation? (laughs) I know these are tiny little things that probably make no difference to anyone else, but I'm fascinated by this. No, it's a great question because what they would have spoken in is Latin. They, Uh yeah, they spoke, they, Latin was not just a language you read, but it was also a language that you spoke. Now, of course, Barnes being in Germany, he, he, I'm sure he learned a lot of German and learned how to, you know, order a glass of beer or something in German. But that that would not have been a problem. Maybe, you know, the Germans and the English spoke their Latin with different accents, but they, they definitely could communicate and did communicate in Latin. So foreign students could come to Wittenberg and it would work out just okay. Hmm. 
man. It's valuable to study Latin. All right. (laughs) So we've learned about Robert Barnes, another key figure that you'd like for us to learn about in this part of the English Reformation. Yeah, that's that's William Tyndale. And I'm leaving him to the end. And that's probably too bad because he's the most important of the ones that we're talking about. William Tyndale was, again, somebody who at school, this time Oxford, became enamored of the new learning, going back to the classics, going back to the Christian, the Bible, the New Testament, etc. Interested in applying those things when, as a young priest, he was stationed out as a tutor in Gloucestershire, which is in the west of England. That was kind of his home territory. Um, And there he was just appalled by the ignorance of his fellow clergy. And so on one particular occasion, when they were going on about how terrible his heresy was, he basically told them, he said, look, I am going to do something to correct you and to teach people correctly. And this is what he said. If God spare my life before many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than you do. And how was he going to do that? By translating the Bible into English. So Tyndale pulled up his resources and moved to London, thinking London would be a better place to have the resources for translating the Bible. And he went to the Bishop of London, who actually was a friend of Erasmus. So he thought, oh, Erasmus believed in the believed in the vernacular Bible. Maybe this guy will too. Bishop of London didn't want to have anything to do with it because he knew by this time, and again, we're in the middle of the 1520s, maybe 1522, 23, somewhere in there, that it was heretics, in quotes, who were interested in the Bible and the language of the people. So Tyndale, a little bit at a loss, looked around to see if there would be somebody else he could find. And in fact, he did find. He did find some sympathizers for him and his cause of an English Bible among the English merchant class there in London. And this class had connections with the continent for business reasons, but then were often exposed to some of those new ideas. In addition, some of them maybe were still interested in the late medieval heretic, kind of proto-Protestant John Wycliffe. At any rate, there's a group of guys for whom Tyndale's ideas sounded reasonable and they supported him financially, but London still wasn't the place to do it. So Tyndale went abroad, made his way to German lands. He was in Worms, he was in Cologne, he was in Antwerp, and he may also have made his way out to Wittenberg. We're not positive about that, but we think because he was very influenced by Martin Luther when he finally tackled this task of translating the Bible into English. He took to it right away. And uh, Luther's uh, New Testament come out in 1523. Tyndale's New Testament was ready by 1525, just a couple of years later. He found a printer in the imperial city of Cologne who would undertake the work. The guy was started working on it, etc., and then disaster struck. It turns out that there was a Catholic theologian, a defender of traditional religion, also in Cologne, who was using the same printer. And because he was using the same printer, he discovered that this printer had another job, that is, producing an English Bible. He alerted the authorities in Cologne. They immediately put a stop to it. And Tyndale had to take what he had and clear out of there as soon as possible. Now, Apparently, what he had finished was just the first part, his prologue and uh, Matthew and maybe a part of Mark. And we actually have 
a couple of fragments of that first effort at an English Bible by Tyndale. It's called the Cologne Fragment. And just from looking at it, we can see how closely Tyndale was influenced by Martin Luther in this Bible translating work. The prologue that Tyndale wrote really is half of it's like a translation of Luther's prologue. The way he translates certain terms, you can see that he's translating in the same way that Luther did. For example, the term for church. In Greek, it's ecclesia. Luther didn't use the term church in Latin. He didn't use kirka. He used gemeinde or congregation. And that's what Tyndale used. He didn't use church. He used congregation because both men, Luther first, were concerned that if I use the old word church, everybody's going to understand the Roman church, the hierarchy, the bishops, the popes, etc. But that's not what Jesus meant when he talked about the church. So Tyndale was heavily influenced by Luther in that pioneer translation work. Now, he couldn't finish it in Cologne. He goes to Worms. The next year, a complete New Testament comes out. This is the first printed English New Testament, and William Tyndale is responsible for it. Um, he didn't have the stuff that he was going to put in the Cologne fragment because apparently he wanted to get it, get it done now that uh, the other one had uh, not turned out correctly. But in the 1530s, he published a couple more translations of the New Testament. And there he did, again, include a lot of Luther material. Luther wrote prefaces to the books of the New Testament, and Tyndale um, used that material for his own prefaces in the English New Testament. Luther ordered the books of the New Testament in a certain way. Tyndale followed him in the same listing of the books in there. And, and in, in general, he adopts kind of a Lutheran attitude toward this task of translating the New Testament. And so to the Old Testament, like Luther, when the New Testament was finished, Tyndale turned to the Old Testament and got the first five books of the Pentateuch finished. And when he died, he left behind manuscripts for the next part of the Old Testament that were later on incorporated into the English Bible. But Tyndale, like the others we've talked about so far, had was also martyred. This time, not by anybody in England, but continental authorities found out about his activities. Him put him into prison, tried and convicted him for heresy. This was in 1535, I think it was. Um, Tyndale did not die by being burned at the stake. They were hum more humane in the empire. They strangled him first. He was strangled at the stake, and then his body was burned. His last words included, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And that's probably kind of what we want to talk about in our next uh, next broadcast. Oh, I am looking forward to that for sure. So many interesting people that were involved in the Reformation and in the English Reformation and these names that, that maybe we've heard before but don't know their full involvement in everything that happened at this historical time. So this is this is very interesting. I'm very much looking forward to getting into more of this in our next episode. Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. I'm enjoying it myself. Thank you. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. 
The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere.